We are in a message series in the book of Daniel, and so that's what we do oftentimes here is we just go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 9 today, and so if you want to grab your Bible, open up your app, head for Daniel chapter 9, that's where we'll kind of camp out together this morning, and man, I'm super excited about Daniel chapter 9 and slightly terrified um, um, as a pastor, if you know anything about chapter nine, the, the tail end of the chapter includes uh, what is arguably the most difficult passage in the entire Bible uh, to interpret. And so I'm gonna do my best uh, when we get there to kind of stay out of the weeds, just focus on kind of the main point application. Um, but I'm also super excited because in this chapter, we get one of the most beautiful examples of prayer that we get anywhere uh, in the entire Bible. And, and so I'm super excited about that aspect of it. Uh, tomorrow being 4th of July, I decided to uh, show my kids the movie The Patriot, that Mel Gibson movie. Remember back, back in like, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s? And uh, mixed reviews from my kids. They weren't quite as uh, excited about it as I was. But actually, uh, the character that Mel Gibson plays in that particular movie, although it's highly exaggerated as most movies are, that character is actually based on the life of a, of a real man named Francis Marion. He's actually just a little, born just a little south from here in South Carolina. He was born with uh, malformed legs and, uh, and learned a lot about irregular warfare or what some would call guerrilla warfare uh, by fighting uh, the Cherokee. And so uh, when it came time for the Revolutionary War, uh, Francis Marion kind of stepped up. He learned all these tactics, and they began to, to use these tactics on the, the ferocious kind of world empire power, the British uh, Redcoats, and they didn't know what hit them, right? And so he started using these incredible tactics like ambushes, uh, firing on officers, which is kind of like unheard of. Uh, in, in wartime practices in those days, they would hide in like trees and, and swamps and kind of come out of the shadows and ambush and then kind of retreat really quickly. And so employed all of these kind of secret weapons, kind of secret strategies. And as I was thinking about that, most if you think about most wars where there was a big upset, you know, like a, a, a smaller country defeats a bigger country, or even in the sports world, when you see big upsets, usually there's an element of surprise uh, or it's kind of a, a secret weapon, an underutilized weapon. And, and I would just argue that for us, as followers of Jesus, whether you're in the room this morning, whether you're watching online, one of the most underutilized weapons that we have in our spiritual tool belt is prayer. I think it's one of the most underutilized kind of secret weapons uh, that we have, and many of us don't take uh, advantage of it. Uh, in fact, let me read you just a few quotes from uh, one of my favorite pastors uh, throughout time in history, Charles Spurgeon. This will be on the screens for you so you can follow along. This is what Spurgeon says about prayer. He says, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. And I love that. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. That's coming from maybe the best uh, preacher ever to walk the earth. Prayer is, and this is my favorite, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of God's omnipotence. So let, let me just start out by giving you kind of one of our big ideas on the front end. This will be on the screens for you, for you note takers, but this is a really important point. Access to the power of God comes through Prayer. In fact, I would argue that the access code to God's power is spelled P-R-A-Y-E-R. 
I would argue also that prayer is the most underrated weapon in our spiritual arsenal as Christians. Now, if you've been here throughout this series, you know that Daniel was a man marked by prayer. In fact, every turn in this book, it seems like Daniel's praying, right? That's the reason he gets thrown into the lion's den, because he's praying three times a day, and he defies the edict of the king. Daniel is a prayer warrior. And come to think of it, I think every great saint, older saint that I've known in the faith that I have a lot of respect for, have been, they have been marked by this thing. They've been prayer warriors, and Daniel's going to model this for us in a, in a really, I think, a, a beautiful way in chapter 9. And just a moment, I want us to read it uh, in its entirety because it's, it's really incredible. But then we'll look at a, a couple of applications. But let's, let's go ahead and start. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asarius, by a descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. That's a, just another word for Babylonians. Don't let that throw you off. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books... The number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, so underline that, that's an important detail, we'll come back to that in just a minute, uh, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, and underline this, 70 years. That's another important point uh, in this text. Now, you may remember, if you were here last week, we ended chapter 8 with Daniel getting a vision from the Lord that so disturbed him that he actually had to go and lay in his bed for several days. Now, it's interesting to me that the very next chapter, the opening of the very next chapter, the very first thing that we see him doing here, and I think this is informative for us, this is instructive for us, we see him reading what? Jeremiah. Now, where, where do we find Jeremiah? The old, that's right, it's not a trick question. The Old Testament, God's Word, the Bible. So if you're curious exactly what he was reading, uh, let, me, let me put it on the screens for you. This is Jeremiah 25. This is what Daniel was reading. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, he's talking about his people, uh, Israel, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for how long? 70 years. Now, I want you to remember, if you were back here the first couple of weeks that we started this series, uh, Daniel was brought back as a POW, right? A prisoner of war. Uh, scholars believe in around 605 BC by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. So, so now Daniel's an old man. He got there when he was 15, 16 years old. At this point, when he's writing this, he's an, he's an older gentleman. He's been in Babylon, scholars believe, for probably 67, maybe 68 years at this time. And so he's, we can just imagine Daniel, man, he's having his quiet time in the morning, he's sipping on his coffee, he's in the book of Jeremiah, and he comes across this promise that God would deliver his people out of captivity after 70 years. And he's like, well, I'll be dogged. Like, that's just like a couple of years from now. This is incredible. Now, now here's the cool thing. Daniel doesn't just do what I think maybe I would have done, what I think a lot of us would have done, and just go, well, you know what? God promised to do it. So I guess I'm just going to sit back, drink a couple of ice lattes, watch a little Netflix for the next 24 months, and see if God comes through on his promise. No. Daniel sees this promise, and immediately he engages God. He hits his knees. He begins to pray. Why? Why would he do that if God has already promised to deliver his people out of captivity after 70 years? Now, now here's why. I think this is important. Daniel understood something that I think we as modern-day Christians largely has, have lost, and I think we need to recover it. All right? 
So I'm gonna put this on the screens for you. The prayer of God's people activates the power of his promises. Let me say that again. The prayer of God's people activates the power of his promises. Listen, guys, the God of this universe, if you believe the Bible is true, hears and responds to the prayers of his people. How insane is that? That I pray, little, little nobody me, I can pray, and the God of this universe hears me, loves me enough as his son to respond and to answer me. This is incredible. And this is exactly what Daniel does. He doesn't just say, oh, well, God promised to do it. I guess I'll do nothing. No, he engages God in prayer. And again, I want us to read Daniel's prayer in its entirety because it's beautiful. Now, it's a little lengthy, so you're just gonna have to tune in. Uh, this will be on the screens for you. And just kind of dial in with me for just a couple minutes as we read this prayer from Daniel. Verse three starts. Daniel says, then I turned my face to the Lord God. Now, this is the idea of turning your face. is the idea of determination in prayer. This isn't a haphazard prayer. This isn't just kind of, kind of a simple, this is, this is I'm determined to engage God. Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is a, a, an ancient outward way of showing a repentance and sorrow. Verse four, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and his commandments. We have seen, now notice the language that he uses here. If you follow Daniel's life, he's like one of the most righteous dudes that, that we see in scripture. Now, he wasn't perfect. Surely he sinned just like we do, but he, it seems like he's really following the Lord, and yet he uses the language of we here a lot. Notice that. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, princes, and fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it is this day to the man of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, that is uh, the, in Deuteronomy, the servants of God have been poured the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamities. Talking about the captivity, right? God's people were taken to Babylon for 70 years. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now he's recounting the, the delivery of God uh, throughout time and history. You have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, 
According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. They've been forgotten among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh our God, listen. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear to hear. Would you open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name? For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, guys, this is, this is a serious prayer, isn't it? This is deep from the heart, deep from Daniel's soul. This is a far cry from what most of our prayers look like, if we're being honest, right? For, for, for most, most of us, or, or at least many of us, our prayer life can kind of look like, hey, God, bless this food, amen. That's kind of the extent of our prayer life, isn't it? God, help me, help me, help me sleep well tonight, amen. God, let me date that hot girl in my class, a- amen, right? And there's not necessarily anything wrong with those kinds of prayers, but man, this Daniel chapter nine, this is a real heartfelt, man, I'm knocking on the throne room of God, I'm claiming his promises, I'm clinging to his character, I'm pleading his mercy kind of prayer. And it's awesome, and it's powerful, and I think there's a lot for us to learn here from Daniel's prayer. So let me give you uh, what I believe to be, uh, from this text, Daniel's pattern of prayer that I think we can begin to use, if we're not already using it, in our own lives to really increase the effectiveness of our own prayer lives. Now, if you're here and you don't have a prayer life, whether you're eight years old or you're 80 years old, uh, now is a good time to start, all right? So if you're not in the habit of of praying, engaging God in prayer, uh, let me just implore you, now is a wonderful time to start building your prayer life up, and these four principles from Daniel chapter 9 will will help you get started, I think. So Daniel's prayer pattern, number one, is he prays the promises of God. And I would just implore you, believer, follower of Jesus, you also should be praying the promises of God. In fact, Daniel's entire prayer is based off of one promise found in Jeremiah chapter 25. If you, if you read the book of Psalms, one of my, my favorite books in the entire Bible, written primarily by King David, he is consistently and constantly praying the promises of God, as do so many biblical writers. Why is that? I think Paul tells us, the apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, this will be on the screens for you, Paul writes this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who's that him? That's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, the, to God for his glory. So let me, let me just say, if you're here, uh, if you maybe you're a new Christian, you're just kind of starting out on this journey, or maybe you've fallen, been following Jesus for some time, but you've never really engaged or developed the discipline of a strong prayer life, if you don't know where to start, let me just say, start, start with praying God's promises. That is a wonderful place to start. Let me just give you a few. All right, this is Old Testament, Nahum 1-7. This is a promise. It says this, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. Is anybody out there in troubling times in, in your life? He says right here, go to God. He's, a, he's your refuge. He cares for those who trust in him. Isaiah 40, here's a, another great promise. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. 
Is anybody weary in life out there right now? Turn to God, run to him. Isaiah 40 says this, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 43 says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And on and on we could go. That's just Old Testament. We didn't even break into the New Testament. Friend, learn how to pray the promises of God. They're powerful. I love the way that that, that Spurgeon puts it. I'll put this quote on the screens for you as well. He writes this, oh, that you studied your Bibles more. Oh, that we all did. How we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we could hold him to his word and say, fulfill this word unto your servant on what you have caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when our mouth is full of God's word for there's no word that can prevail with him like his own. We've got to learn how to pray the promises of God. Daniel models this for us. Here's the second element of Daniel's style of prayer or his pattern of prayer. As believer, I think we need to learn how to pray persistently. We have to learn how to pray persistently. You, know, you gotta know, this is not Daniel's first prayer for the deliverance of his people. In fact, persistent prayer seems to mark Daniel's life throughout his whole life. And I feel like for, for many of us as modern day disciples of Jesus, we lack spiritual persistence. Don't we, if we're being honest, like like things don't go our way in three seconds and we're just like, we're done with it. We are the generation of instant gratification, right? From microwave meals to downloadable movies. Man, I'm just being honest with you. Uh, I get irritated if I'm at a traffic light and it doesn't turn green within five seconds. I just start start getting fidgety, man. Like, what's what's going on? What's wrong? Just this last weekend, I got behind uh, somebody who was driving 25 and a 45, and I was, in, I was in a hurry, man. I started speaking in tongues, and I don't, I don't, even, I don't even have that spiritual gift. You know, now, now, why do they always have Florida plates? I don't know, but um, if you're from Florida, maybe you can come explain why you guys don't know how to drive uh, after, after the service. But listen, guys, we have, been, we have been trained in the art, in our culture, we have been trained in the art of impatience. Now, unfortunately, this can bleed into our spiritual lives as well, can it not? can bleed into our walk with Jesus. Like, hey, man, I, I prayed for this thing like three whole times, and God didn't answer, so I'm done. Now, in fact, I'll show you, God, I'm just not going to pray anymore. I'm really going to teach him. Now, we, we, have, we have weak spiritual muscles, friends. Even Jesus taught us to pray persistently. In fact, uh, he tells this incredible parable in Luke chapter 18. He, he gathers up his disciples. He says, hey, guys, I'm going to teach you how to pray and not lose heart. In other words, I'm going to teach you how to pray with persistence. And he tells them this story of this really wicked judge who's living in this city. And this guy's just a nasty dude. He he doesn't love God and he doesn't love people. And there's also a widow in the city and and some great injustice has happened to her. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what happened to this poor widow. We don't know if somebody murdered her husband. We don't know if she's been assaulted or robbed in some way. But she is seeking justice. And the problem for her is the only judge in her city is a corrupt, evil judge. And Jesus goes on and he tells this story. She keeps coming and asking for justice. And the evil judge keeps pushing her off, right? And so the picture I get in my mind is, you know, this evil judge, he goes to the grocery store and she kind of pops out from behind the cereal boxes and she's like, hey, judge, get me, give me justice. 
And, right, and then she, the, the judge goes to the coffee shop and, and she kind of pops up from behind the bar and she's like, give me justice. And then he goes to the golf course and she pops from behind a tree and he's like, here I am again, give me justice. And she will not leave this evil judge alone. She is relentless in her request. And, and the story goes, Jesus says, even this evil judge eventually relents and he says, this woman is beating me down. And so I'm going, that literally says that. You can go read it. She's beating me down and I'm gonna give her what she wants so that she will leave me alone. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, guys, listen, if, if even an unrighteous judge answers the persistent call, how much more will God answer his elect, his sons, his daughters? And then Jesus says he will answer speedily. Why? Because of persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. That's what I say, y'all. Listen, we've got to develop spiritual muscles for the long game. So many of us, we start out our journey, our walk with Jesus, thinking it's like a 40-yard sprint when it's actually an ultramarathon. Right, and my, my hand is up there. I tend to be an impatient person. I want things how I want them, when I want them, the way I want them, and if not, I can throw myself a really nice pity party. Right? And many of you can relate to that. And so we, we need this lesson from Daniel. First of all, we gotta pray the promises. Secondly, we gotta learn to pray persistently. Don't give up. Have some perseverance in your spiritual life. That's important. Here's the third element that we learn about this uh, prayer from Daniel. Number three is pray biblical patterns. Now, what do I mean by that? Pray biblical patterns. Here's the deal. Every prayer in scripture seems to follow a very distinct pattern. In, in fact, I would argue that every prayer in the Bible has one or more elements of what is commonly called the ACTS, A-C-T-S, method of prayer. Many of you have heard of that, right? This is the prayer pattern when I'm discipling someone and they're just beginning in the faith. This is what I recommend to them. In fact, it should be on the screens behind me. It is. ACTS, right? So A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving, and then finally, the one that we're all pretty good at, supplication, right? Asking for stuff, right? So we, we see these elements in Daniel's prayer. In fact, we see almost all of these elements in, in the Lord's prayer, what's called the Lord's prayer in the gospel when Jesus modeled prayer for his disciples. And listen, friend, I would encourage you to begin practicing this biblical pattern of prayer in your own life. Because here's the deal, if we're being honest, it's really easy for most of us to get stuck in the rut of just praying the last element, right? The S, the supplication. Most of us are good at that one. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, heal this in my body. God, heal this person. I know God, fix this relationship. God, fix this situation at work. And if we're not careful, even subconsciously, we can begin to treat God like a cosmic butler who exists to serve us. And see, praying biblical patterns forces us to think about God's character, his goodness. It forces us to repent of our own sins. It encourages us to, to thank God for all he's done because the reality is no matter how bad you have it right now, we all have things that we can be thankful to God for, can't we? And then yes, finally, we should ask him for what's on our heart, but always in conjunction with those other elements as well. So here's, here's the fourth, the, the, the last element of Daniel's prayer I think we can apply. As you'll notice, Daniel pleads God's mercy. He pleads God's mercy, right? Not just for his own sin, but he, but he prays for the sin of his people, the nation of Israel. Now, that's something that I think we're not very good at. As individualistic Americans and kind of our individualistic culture, we can kind of have the mindset of, man, I'm gonna pray for my sin if I pray for any sin. But, man, I, 
I didn't do my friend's sin. I'm not responsible for the sin of my nation. I'm not responsible for the sin of the people in my church. I'm, I'm really just responsible for, for my sin. And yet, there's this communal aspect to being God's people that Daniel understands that we don't seem to grasp very well. He's praying for forgiveness for his own sin, but also corporate forgiveness for the sins of God's people. And he asked God to act, not because he, Daniel, has somehow earned it, right? His attitude is not like, hey, God, listen, um, I, I go to church every Sunday, God. Uh, I, I give my tithe every week, God. I read my Bible most days, God. I, I pray three times a day. And so, God, you owe me this. God, I've done, I've done all these things. That's what, that's what we call checklist theology, right? I've, I've checked off all the lists. So now you're in my debt, God. He doesn't plead God's mercy based on his own goodness. Daniel pleads God's mercy based on God's own character. In essence, and this is incredible, guys. In essence, Daniel is reminding God of who he is and what he's like. Now, now what, what might this look like for us as modern-day Christians trying to follow Jesus in 2022 in Western North Carolina? What, what might this look like for us? Maybe this would look like if you're uh, getting a little bit older and you've got teenagers or maybe young adult uh, children who are, who are wayward, who are walking away from the Lord. Maybe this looks like you going to God and saying, God, God, would you have mercy God, I, I, don't, I don't deserve for you to pursue my kid. Like, I, I'm a sinner. I, I know I messed up so many ways as a parent, and my, my kids don't deserve for you to chase them and forgive them and love them. But, but God, because of your great mercy, God, because of your love, because of your grace, would you pursue them? Would you not let them run forever? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you save them? Listen, guys, that's my story. When I was running from God as a high school student, as a college student, unbeknownst to me, there was a, a women's, a mom's prayer group at my church where my mom and a bunch of other moms, man, they hit their knees every single week begging for my soul. Like, God, don't let him go. Don't let him get away. God, draw him in, woo him in. And God, in his time, did just that. So this is Daniel's pattern of prayer. I think we would be wise to adopt it. And here's why. This is important. Why would we pray like this? Why would we pray consistently, persistently? Here's why. Guys, listen. God hears our prayer. God sees our pain. And this is the most amazing part of all. He delights to answer our prayers. Isn't that amazing, church? That God hears our prayers. That he sees the pain in my life and your life. And he actually delights to answer his daughter's and his son. Now, we're going to see how God answers Daniel beginning in verse 20. Watch this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Now, we got introduced to Gabriel last week, right? This is the angel, appears to Daniel, appears like a man. He's actually an angel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come now out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, listen to this, for you are greatly loved. And I love that. Daniel, listen, guys, Daniel's not even done with his prayer, and God is already answering it. And I love the very first thing Gabriel kind of says to him is he says, listen, I want you to know that you are greatly loved. Some translations say there that you are greatly treasured. And from that, man, we could preach a whole sermon just on that. Believer, listen, when we pray, we should pray from the position, posture, and power of one who is loved 
and treasured by the king of this universe. And I just wonder how many of us actually enter into the throne room of God with that posture. So many times we can kind of come to God and we feel like he's disappointed in us or he's mad at us or he's listening to us begrudgingly because we've sinned and we've messed up again. And Daniel chapter nine reminds us, no, 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 your father in heaven loves you. He treasures you. And we ought to enter into prayer with that posture and that power. How would that change the way that we pray if we really understood that and wrapped our brains around that fact? And then the angel says, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Now, that's the prayer part, all right? And so again, let me just encourage you, begin to implement those things in your prayer life. Now we're gonna move into the back half or the back third of this chapter, which is arguably the most challenging text in the Bible uh, to interpret. Now, some of you Bible geeks, man, you've been waiting for this moment, this whole series. I'm just gonna tell you I'm about to disappoint you, okay? In fact, let me read to you uh, what, what the great pastor and a Scottish theologian, Alistair Begg, says about this passage, and I would just uh, give a hearty amen to what he says. He says this, and what follows... I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, perhaps encourage a few. And I would just say after studying this for many hours this week, I would just say a hearty amen uh, to Begg's uh, idea of what we're tackling beginning in verse 24. So let, let's just try to unpack it uh, as best we can. Verse 24 says this, 70 weeks now, uh, the Hebrew word there, translated weeks, is actually a, a better interpreted sevens, 70 sevens, right? So I think the NIV actually gets this right. Uh, ESV surprisingly gets it wrong. So really it should say 70 sevens there. Now, uh, there are some who interpret this literally, and most scholars believe it, that that's talking about years, so 70 times seven. So somebody who's good at math, what is 70 times seven? 490, good job. So 490, so some scholars would say this, this means there's gonna be a period of 490 years, all right, are decreed about your people and your holy city. So in other words, there are several things that are gonna happen in this 490-year span. And he's about to tell us what's gonna happen in that span of time, several things. One, finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, Seal both the vision and the prophet and anoint the most holy place, or your translation may say the most holy one. Now, I would argue even a small kid who's grown up in church has heard the gospels over and over would say, you know what, that sounds a lot like what Jesus did, right? Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting right, righteousness, anoint the most holy place or one. That sounds like what Jesus did. And those kids, if that were their guess, I think they nailed it. That's exactly what Daniel was talking about. This is a, a prophecy that within about 500 years, this Messiah is gonna show up and he's going to accomplish all of these things on the world scene. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, this is the, the, the wording for the Messiah, a prince, there shall be uh, seven weeks, then for 62 weeks. So what's seven plus 62? 69, okay, so that covers 69 of the 70 weeks, right? So about 483 years. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, plus the seven that he already mentioned, an anointed one shall be cut off or killed, right? Cut off from the land of the living and shall have nothing. 
Now, I have to tell you, I spent hours and hours and hours studying this this week, and my brain almost exploded at least 13 times. There, there are three or four main interpretations to this text and how to work out all these numbers. I'm not going to bore you uh, with all of the theories. We don't have time to get into that. Uh, I'll just tell you where I land uh, with the caveat that I may change my mind tomorrow, all right? So don't, don't email me. Some scholars would say that the, the 77s, uh, they're literal years, right? So for example, if you start the clock in 445 BC, which is where a lot of people think that this clock for the 490 years actually starts, that's a decree that happens in the, the book of Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. So if you start at 445 BC, if you count leap years, if you go by solar years, which they apparently did in ancient times, so those years are like 360 days instead of 365 days. If you do all of the math, it comes out right around either the, the time of the baptism of Jesus or the time of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city on Palm Sunday. Like I've studied these charts and graphs and how they do the math. It's actually incredibly Precise, if that is the actual interpretation. Other scholars would say, no, 77s is not literal 490 years. It's a symbolic time period. And the Bible oftentimes uses symbolic language like this. You kind of think about the Gospels where Jesus says, hey, forgive your brother 70 times 7. Remember that? No, it doesn't. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, keep a notepad in your pocket. And when he, when he sins against you the 491th time, you can say, hey, sorry, pal. I don't have to forgive you anymore. No, it was, it was symbolic. It just meant forever. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, right? Either way, whether you take this as a literal 490 years or just kind of a general time frame, I think what Gabriel was saying to Daniel is this. Man, you are looking forward to the rebuild of Jerusalem. That's understandable. You should look forward to that. That's going to happen. But something even greater is on the way. In 77s, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to do away with sin. He's going to make atonement. He's going to establish a forever kingdom of righteousness. In other words, he shows up and he says to Daniel, I've got good news for you, and i got even better news for you. And that's the kind of news I like to get, right? Oftentimes people say, hey, i got news for you. i got good news, bad news. The angel's like, hey, Daniel, i got good news, and i got good news, right? Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt and God's going to send the Messiah to restore everything that was lost in the garden all those years ago. However you interpret those 77s, whether you interpret it as a literal 490 years or a symbolic period of time, the point is that, listen, during this first 69 weeks, whether that's 483 years or some symbolic period of time, all these things will be accomplished by the Messiah in his lifetime, in his life, death, and resurrection, as we look back at time in history, they were exactly accomplished just like Daniel was told they would be. Now, that, that all happens in the first 69 weeks. Now, the question then becomes for scholars, what of the 70th week? What happens in that final week? And remember, that week really means seven. So what happens in the final seven years of this time frame? Now, this is... Again, what I believe, I could change my mind tonight, but I believe that this last week, the final seven years here, is future for us. The first 69 weeks were accomplished with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I believe the last week, the last seven years, are still future even for us. And I believe that this references the time of the final Antichrist. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at the middle of verse 26. It says this, And the people of the prince, now again, I believe this is referring to the final Antichrist, the little horn that we met in chapter 7, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now what's week mean? We think possibly seven years. So make a strong covenant with many for seven years. And for half of the week or three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In other words, he's gonna have his day in the sun, but it's gonna be short-lived because the Messiah is going to come to rule and to reign. Now, the Antichrist in those final years, it appears to me, if I'm understanding this correctly, is going to bring world peace in a time of great global unrest. It appears to me, actually, that he's going to help uh, enact a, a peace treaty of some time, likely in the Middle East, perhaps with Israel itself. He's gonna look like a hero, a political genius, but halfway through those seven years, according to this prophecy, all hell is going to break loose, and it's gonna be miserable, right? And at the end of those seven years, according to the book of Revelation in chapter 19, at the end of those seven years, tells us Jesus is gonna come back, this time not as a helpless babe in a manger, but as a warrior king to exact justice on all evil, including the final Antichrist. And when he comes back, he's gonna establish a new kingdom with no more fear, or no more evil, no more war, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears. And church family, listen, that is the main point of this insanely difficult to interpret passage. That God is moving time and history to an appointed outcome where Jesus comes back to defeat evil and establish a kingdom of light, love, and justice that will never end. Listen, y'all, I'm gonna put this on the screen. This is kind of the last deal. If you're a note taker, write this down. This is the whole point of this really hard thing to understand. This is the whole point. God is sovereign, Jesus is coming back, and you are loved. God is sovereign, Jesus is coming back, and you are loved. Now listen, church family, we, in the church world, pastors are especially notoriously bad about this. We can get so wrapped up in the 77s and end time charts and predicting dates and times that the Antichrist is gonna come back and Jesus is gonna come back and all these things. And that, listen, all that stuff is super interesting to talk about, but I also want you to understand, it's also totally secondary to the main point. God is sovereign. Jesus is coming back, and you are loved. And so the, the question that lies before us today is simply this, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the fact that God is sovereign, that Jesus is coming back maybe soon, and that you are deeply loved by your creator? Are you going to live like culture, or are you going to live like Christ? Are you gonna chase the idols of Babylon today or are you gonna chase the kingdom of Jesus? And how you answer that question in your own life will make all the difference in your life. Let's pray as the band comes and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're grateful for uh, your word. God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm, I'm grateful for the parts like the first half of Daniel 9 that are super easy to understand that just kind of encourage us to engage you in prayer. God, thank you that you're not a God who's far off. You're not a distant God. You're a God who draws near to us. You want relationship with us. You want communication with us. That is mind-blowing. That you would want a relationship with somebody like me. God, so would you, would you help us to step into that relationship? Not timidly, but boldly, knowing that we are deeply loved, deeply treasured by our Father in heaven. 
God, help us never to minimize the role of prayer in our spiritual walk. Help it not just be a secondary thing that we tack on when we're about to eat a meal or we're about to go to sleep, God, but help us to engage in deep relational prayers like we read about in Daniel chapter nine. Help us to know your heart, that you're a good God, that you're a relational God. You long to hear from your sons and your daughters. So God, would you make us a people of prayer here at this church? Would you make us bold warriors for the faith as we come to you and we adore you, we confess our sins to you, we thank you for what you've done in our life, and then we ask for what's on our heart. God, would you help us become those kind of men, those kind of women for your sake and for your glory, God. And as we look at more difficult parts of your word, like the last part of this chapter, God, help us not to get so wrapped up in the details that we miss the main point, that you are sovereign, that you are sending Jesus back again to set everything right, that everything that we lost all those years ago in the Garden of Eden, God, you're gonna restore that garden And everything is gonna be perfect. Everything that's wrong in this world is gonna be made right. Every injustice is gonna be made just. Every tear is gonna be wiped away. Not just one time, but forever and ever and ever in your kingdom. God, we long for that day. And so we pray, Jesus, come quickly. We love you, Jesus. There's no way we could ever thank you for what you've done for us. It's in your strong, your beautiful name that we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. Church, would you stand as we worship him?